Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Field. Only Nixon can go to China. The now forgotten aphorism once represented so much in American politics... After Nixon met with Mao, relations between the communist country and America thawed, trade opened up, and, the popular notion went, with economic benefits would come a lessening of authoritarianism in China and the eventual eventual end of communism. Here in 2023, the idea that economic modernization and prosperity would lead to a flourishing of democracy in China seems quaint. Well, what happened? And do the West's preconceptions of what democracy and freedom are vibe with what's actually going on in China? That's what we are here to discuss in a nuanced way. With us is Sung Min Cho, the author of the new article, Does China's Case Falsify Modernization Theory? Cho is a professor at the Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for the invitation. So... We like to get kind of basics out of the way for people that may not know what is modernization theory and what does it say broadly? Um, it is very simple and intuitive theory that if you help a country to develop uh, an economy, then uh, that will lead to uh, the increase of wealth, uh, creating middle class, and then middle class will spend money to uh uh, for better education of their children, so that will lead to the rise of educational level. And then as the economy develops, uh, there will be urbanization and also more connection between the society and outside world. Um, so economic development will bring in all the good things which will end up spreading democratic uh, and liberal values and then they will create a force for the democratic democratic uh, transition uh, from non-democratic country to a democracy. And then good example is, there are many, uh, but good example is um, uh, in recent history, South Korea or Taiwan are the best examples that they are, their economy develops. And then there was a grassroots movement and more demand for the openness in the government. Uh, and then there was uh, some uh, some uh, strong uh, democracy protest. 
uh, and then in the end, they will bring in uh, democratization of the political system. So there's kind of this perception in the West right now that this has not happened in China, right? There is an idea that their their economy has grown over the last several generations, but democracy has not flourished. And in many cases, outside viewers would say that authoritarian has or authoritarianism has, and the communist party is as strong as it's ever been. Um, what I really liked about your article is that you give a very, you kind of refute that a little kind of right, but it's more complicated. There's a lot going on here. Um, so uh, can you talk about the ways that liberal values and democratization has actually happened in China? Yeah. Um, so it is a complex uh, reality. And then because of our uh, cognitive tendency that we want to have a simple understanding and simple ex explanation for the complex situation, so we quickly jump to the conclusion that, okay, Xi Jinping is still a very strong leader. So it is, there was no democratic change period. So China clearly, China's economy uh, has clearly developed very rapidly uh, and it became the second largest economy uh, overpassing Japan in 2010. Um, so despite the stunning economic development, China's political system just remains as non-democratic system and even worse, uh, after Xi Jinping took power, there was a more stronger authoritarianism. Um, so um, it's very uh, clear uh, observation that China has not democratized at all, uh, whereas I also like to uh, draw people's attention to what is happening behind what is observable, which is um, uh, Chinese people's uh, perspective and then how how they uh, view the party, the leader, and also the policies. Um, so at the political system level, China is a non-democracy. But if we turn our attention to what's going on inside the society and people's mindset, attitude, values, then there has been some progressive uh, development uh, in people's uh, value system, which is repeatedly confirmed with uh, various surveys, uh, which I present as an evidence. Uh, but again, uh, even even laying out that uh, different layers of non-change and changes, um, I have to admit that the the situation is even more complex because Chinese people's uh, their perspective is not also straightforward that they only have a increasing set of democratic and liberal values. At the same time, their nationalism also has greatly increased. So um, the challenge for outside anal analysts is that how to reconcile these seemingly conflicting uh, trends of that increasing democratic and liberal values and also increasing nationalism. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I China's a pretty big blind spot for me, uh, but I do know a little bit about the pop culture and especially like the online culture around its uh, its people that live stream, 
Like it's people that are on, I can't remember what the platforms are, but they're similar to Twitch, but it's not Twitch. Um, and I've, you know, I, I've talked to some of them and I've uh, you know, read news reports and I've seen documentaries and it strike it watching that stuff. It really struck me how these are people that have what we would kind of classify as typical middle-class Western values. Like they're striving for fame and fortune. They, 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 they want a nice, comfortable life um, while still being very pro like Chinese communist party at the same time, like those things exist together. Right. Yes. Um, And uh, that, that uh, dual attitude can be conceptualized as a liberal national uh, liberal nationalism. So um, we tend to think that if Chinese young generation, especially if they are liberal, which is repeatedly confirmed through a survey, then they are supposed to be internationalist as well. They are supposed to admire Western culture and support for the better relationship between China and and the Western countries. Uh, But also on the other side, um, survey data also repeatedly confirmed that young generation in China is even more nationalistic than their elders, elder generation. Then our when we when we see that survey result, our next assumption is that okay, Chinese young generation, they are nationalistic, so they should be illiberal. Because they are nationalistic and China is an illiberal country, so they their their value system should be illiberal, which conflicts with the previous finding of them increasing democratic and liberal values. So to explain to explain this uh, seemingly conflicting uh, observation is that our ass- assumption is wrong. Our assumption that nationalist means that they support uh, illiberalism is wrong. They can be nationalistic at the same time they can be democratic. And then to solve this puzzle is that uh, they uh, Chinese young generation they are liberal on domestic issues, but they are nationalistic on external issues. So they can support Xi Jinping's uh, strong policy against the U.S. or national unification of Taiwan because they are nationalistic, but that does not mean that they also support Xi Jinping's increasingly repressive policies and censorship. So when there was a a very crazy and angry young Chinese, uh, they are shouting and yelling in front of the U.S. embassy in in Beijing, uh, we assume that, oh my God, they are so nationalistic, they support Xi Jinping, they will support Xi Jinping, whatever Xi Jinping does. Uh, but actually, it turned out it is not the case, uh, as we confirmed during the latest student protest in in, uh, in China against zero COVID policy. So while Chinese students support Xi Jinping for his nationalistic policies, they have been they have been critical of Xi Jinping's illiberal policies at the same time. We just we we just could not really observe their uh, their discussion inside China. Uh, until we could observe when they uh, when their anger break broke out, uh, but that's how we can uh, explain this uh, dual uh, attitude of liberal nationalism, which is not really uh, which is actually very common in uh, in any country. We can also observe any American students are liberal; they may criticize, uh, say, uh, President Trump's illiberal policies, 
but they also can support Trump's policy, his strong drive against another authoritarian Xi Jinping. Um, so, uh, so liberal nationalism is uh, seemingly uh, counterintuitive, but uh, uh, it is also not really difficult to understand. And then that can explain a lot about Chinese people's complex attitude about their country, party, and policy. What is communism in China at this point? Does it have anything to do with uh, Marx or, uh, you know, because we talk about the Communist Party, and I just wonder what it stands for. So communism theory uh, and Marxism and Maoism, uh, Chinese students, uh, they study that, they memorize, they take a lot of pains to take that exam. Uh, But in my time in China from 2008 to 2010, I studied in China for master's degree. Uh, I find that not many people really believe in the ideal of Marxism. Uh, So they are very uncertain about uh, what, the, the ideal of communism is, but what they also, what I find interesting is that they are also against uh, the uh, the uncontrolled, unregulated market capitalism uh, that they observe in the in the U.S. Uh, most representatively, which cause um, the widening inequality, and then also politics are corrupted by the force of market capitalism that. Politicians only represent um, represents the narrow interest of the powerful people or corporates. Um, so, in that regard, Chinese people, uh, Chinese young generation, they still have this uh, leftist ideal of that uh, the state and there should be an authority that regulates uh, the uh, the market capitalism or the force of market and then uh, distribute the wealth uh, in an equal way. Uh, the problem is that um, the, the even in the chi- communist China, uh, communist China, there is a rapidly widening inequality. Uh, so that contradicts their, uh, the Communist Party's own theory, and then Chinese young generation also find that, and then point out that uh, you guys argue that uh, we are communist country, and then how can you explain this uh, widening inequality? Can you tell us a little bit more about that widening inequality? Uh, because the value, it's a, just China is a big country uh, with a lot of different kinds of people. Um, and the values, the liberal values of a city dweller are not the same as the values of some ro- someone in one of the rural parts, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, so it is the, it is the, uh, mechanism of uh, stress that clearly uh, the younger generation living in urban area clearly have more liberal and democratic values than the other segmental population in different uh, locations, which is also confirmed um, uh, confirmed from the survey data. But also uh, the researchers also find that there is a, a this transmission of values from urban to uh, rural area. And then one, the best example is that uh, when there is a, a street protest that is ongoing in rural area, uh, many of them are also organized, inspired, and led by 
the migrant workers who use who spend some time in urban area. So in urban area, migrant workers they were exposed to the uh, the modern system and then have a chance to uh, contact, um, if you will, or internalize some level of in, uh, democratic and liberal values. And then when they come back to their hometown, uh, they they uh, they are the ones who uh, provide the logic and argument about uh, their legal rights and civil rights to uh, protect them. Um, so there is a transmission of uh, transmission of values from urban to rural area, and then the media that uh, that transmit this value is uh, interestingly migrant workers. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, Angry Planet listeners, welcome back. Can you tell me how things have changed since Xi came to power? So it feels like certainly tensions or tensions with America have increased. What is, what are these, you know, these liberal urban dwellers, what is their relationship to him? So love and love and hatred or tough love that, uh, so there, there, there is a reason that why Xi Jinping has also no choice but no choice but to uh, strengthen authoritarianism. That um, so I have to start from this observation that Xi Jinping's rise as a strong leader is ironically confirmed the theory of modernization uh, theory. That um, so modernization theory predicts that with economic development there is more spread of liberal and and democratic values that will uh, form a force uh, against authoritarianism, that people will demand more openness and uh, government accountability, if not outright demand of uh, democratization of the political system like multi-party system or general election. The argument didn't go that far before Xi Jinping, but there was uh, there was a clear increase of all kinds of uh, protest across the country and also feminists and then the, uh, the Chinese uh, post service veterans and uh, just give you some example they form their uh, they form interest groups and they start to demand their uh, uh, their rights uh, and protection of their rights from the state 
So there are so many uh, protests, and then also um, Hu, Jintao, Xi Jin, uh, Hu Jintao and Wang Jiabao error, uh, the Hu Wang government also allows so-called investigative journalism that as a way to control the uh, the corruption by local uh, local party officials or government officials. So the center cannot really monitor all the uh, what's going on on the on the province. So let journalists uh, give them more freedom to investigate and find corruptions. And then the pro- all these uh, liberal policies satisfy people's expectation uh, following this uh, economic development that, okay, uh, China is still uh, on, uh, China is still a non-democratic country at the top. But within that limit, there was a great level of liberalization and people are, are really excited about that. So, that's how they also support uh, the party, not only for economic performance, but also the admi- administrative performance. There was a political reform. As long as you don't really argue that, I like to overthrow the party, I like multi-party system, the party tolerates all kinds of protest and demand. And then the problem is that th- that demand starts to going up. People start to discuss, okay, this is a, gr- a great trend. Maybe uh, we have to criticize Hu Jintao and Wang Jiabao's relatives, he, their daughter's corruption. And, and there was a New York Times and then a Wall Street report about that. And then without censorship, Chinese people learned that and they start to criticize. So the, this liberalization policy went too far. So the party leaders, they realized that, okay, uh, we went too far. This is the time that we need to tighten the control. And then they that's how the rise of Xi Jinping was accepted and supported by the party, uh, other party leaders within the party. Um, so, ironically, because the society is becoming more liberal and they demand more, and then more, uh, they de- they expect more government openness and and accountability. That puts party under pressure. So, uh, Xi Jinping's rise of power and return of strong strong in politics, uh, paradoxically, somehow approves. The you know the the uh, the causal logic of modernization theory. Do you think that that has legs though? Is that is that it, every year that he remains in power, it China looks less and less like it's had democratic reforms. Sure, there there's this liberalization going on, but at a polit- but like at the top of this political level, it's things are calcifying. Uh, yeah. So, like, long-term, what do you see happening there? Um, <clears throat> so he reversed all of the Hu Jintao and Wang Jiabao, uh, so liberal policies and also political reforms set by the previous leader, Jiang Zemin and Deng Xiaoping, breaking the age limit or also the, uh, the informal, uh, informal practice of uh, point, uh, pointing out the the third, their next leader in their previous party congress. So all in all, Xi Jinping really reversed uh, all the liberal legacy and the political reforms of the previous leaders. Um, And then, um, and then he appeals a lot to the nationalism because uh, in order to uh, compensate for the legitimacy as he lost in liberal policies, he has to 
uh, appeal to the nationalism. And then uh, the, the election of President Trump was actually uh, a challenge to China, but also at the same time, an opportunity for Xi Jinping that uh, really President Trump, Trump could really vis- uh, visualize the image of anti-China sentiment in from America. And then Xi Jinping could point out uh, President Trump's image as the U.S. is finally uh, really does not hide its intent to contain the rise of China. China, China has been rapidly rising, and then the U.S. cannot let it happen. So finally, the time that we have been worried come, and then we should unite. So Xi Jinping could appeal, and then Chinese people generally agree. So they put up with uh, Xi Jinping's uh, illiberal policies that because this is the time that China is under external challenge and then uh, we need to unite behind uh, the party's leadership. So they put up with uh, all the censorship, uh, st- strong, uh, strengthening censorship and uh, most critically zero COVID policy. Um, so that, at the beginning of zero COVID policy, they could endure and support that uh, draconian measures, why are they observing all the chaotic initial response uh, to pandemic in the U.S., no mask and wear vaccine? And then, um, so at the beginning of COVID, Chinese people could confirm uh, the part, Xi Jinping's narrative is correct. The, the unity of Chinese country under the leadership of the party is superior than dysfunctional politics in America which causes uh, the spike of the death toll uh, of COVID at the beginning. But as time goes by, uh, America, uh, American society picks up and then develops vaccine, and then uh, the U.S. and other countries get out of these uh, COVID uh, problems, whereas China is digging in to this uh, uh, problem deeper and deeper by sticking to Xi Jinping's zero-COVID policy and then Chinese people lost uh, patience and they started to doubt the judgment of Xi Jinping. And then it erupted in the uh, the student protests uh, in this year. So it sounds sort of like an old playbook to me um, that many countries, when they have domestic issues, start to point beyond their borders to an enemy. Um is there anything that you see that's particularly Chinese about what's happening? Just to differentiate it from, you know, things that have happened in the past. China's also not, they're not wrong. Right, Jason? Like, that I, we look at them as an enemy or a rival? Yeah, of course. True. Like, like True. we're, we're playing the heel for them for sure. Just as they're playing the heel for us. Like, like the Trump certainly talked about it a long, a, a lot. Uh, I would say that a lot of uh, American military policy in the last 10 years has had an eye towards a coming conflict with China, right? It's not like, it's not as if they're, they're making it up. Right. You know? Yeah. We've been pivoting to Asia for about 12 years now. Yeah. Uh, What do you think Western analysts get wrong um so <clears throat> I think a Western analyst focused too much on uh the the power of Xi Jinping that um 
they, they lost sight of uh, Chinese people's thinking, their perspective behind that, and then also lost interest in uh, what impact they will bring in the, the elite politics, uh, which is also a big question to myself. So after uh, the end of the 20th Party Congress, um, Xi Jinping clearly solidified his power base by filling all the uh, power uh, Politburo uh, standing committee with his loyalists. Uh, and then many analysts uh, predict that, okay, Xi Jinping clearly consolidates his power, uh, not conceding any seats to other faction uh, by uh, by removing um, uh, Wang Yang or uh, Li Keqiang. Uh, and then that means that Xi Jinping will stick to his policy of zero COVID policy, wolf warrior policy, um, and um, he will double down on his uh, policy to emphasize political and ideological control over the economic performance. Uh, but it was not, it was not, it, did, it didn't take long for Chinese people to be upset about non-change and then they, uh, young generation especially, they come out to street to Express their opposition against zero COVID policy. Um, so it is easy to, uh, it is easy to write, uh, write down what they observe, uh, on the surface, uh, which is uh, Xi Jinping's, uh, ever strengthening power. Uh, but we, we should not stop making efforts to look into, uh, what Chinese people are thinking and then how they will impact the elite politics. Uh, despite all these uh, obstacles and difficulties of uh, researchers and uh, analysts traveling into China, where can how can people do that now? Like, what are the? And there's such a huge language barrier. I mean, I guess experts hopefully would 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 speak or uh, read some of the languages. But like, where where do you think they should look? Where are the places that they should be going and talking to people? Uh, well, despite this uh, barrier for physical traveling, um, still the online survey is possible. That that's how uh, uh, foreign researchers are still conducting survey. Uh, but the difficulty is that uh, through online survey, uh, there will be more censorship. So you cannot really ask some. You you can only touch upon very uh, questions that are that are not very deep. Um, and also you cannot really conduct uh, an in-depth interview. Uh, but then again, uh, th in, through online and email, still uh, researchers collaborate with Chinese scholars to gather data on um, uh, on people's opinion on um, on something, on the subject, which is now the problem that under Xi Jinping and then uh, this... Uh, Online communication is under very tight surveillance. So that constrains uh, a lot of researchers' latitude to uh, form the question, engage the, the subject. Uh, but despite that, that's the uh, only way that uh, people uh, outside uh, experts can uh, try to get some perspective from inside. Do you think... Let's we're we're kind of coming to the end now, so I'm going to ask you to do to do some speculation with us, if you will. Uh, 
what happens if there's no let up on zero COVID policy, which I know that there's, which I know is hap- is actually happening. Uh, and the world economic outlook is looking weird and shaky right now. Um, and it seems to me as we're talking like the, 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 one of the big differences between what's going on in China right now and like say the end of the Soviet Union when communism collapses in the Soviet Union is that the economic picture is very different, right? There's, there's, a, there's thriving parts of the economy in China. What happens if there's a global downshift in the economy and China starts to struggle? Um, so, uh, so economic performance has been uh, one of, uh, along with nationalism, it has been a very important pillar for Chinese Communist Party's uh, legitimacy. Uh, but, it, it, but if economic, economic, Chinese economy tumbles, uh, the GDP growth already starts to slow down. And then, uh, as you point out, in your scenario, with the global economic uh, uh, downturn, if China gets a negative uh, impact, then... Um, Chinese people will get, uh, they will have a hard time. They get angry. They start to criticize the party. Uh, but that would not directly lead to the demise of the party or Xi Jinping. Uh, what I'm expecting to see is how that will translate into the factional politics within the party. Um, so, and then I look at the episode of Mao Zedong and Liu Shaoqi, Deng Xiaoping, uh, in, in the, uh, early 1960s. So many people say that, oh my gosh, Xi Jinping is so powerful. He really, he wants to be another, he wants to be another Mao Zedong. And then if we look at what actually happened, uh, with Mao Zedong's case is that, so Mao Zedong launched this, uh, uh, national project, uh, uh, Great Leap Forward mobilize the whole society and country for the grand goal of uh, uh, becoming a uh, great economy uh, but it turned out it was it turned out it was uh, it ends up as a great famine so many people die from that uh, but because of Mao Zedong's authority no one really advised against uh, this uh, project until the project fails so well uh, so much that to the point that uh, Mao Zedong himself acknowledged it, no one really, really dared to uh, advise. And then there was a fabrication of the uh, data that was reported to him. Um, so it is like zero, Xi Jinping's zero COVID policy. Xi Jinping is so powerful. Zero COVID policy is Xi Jinping's signature policy. So no one dares to say that, well, this may be wrong. We need to develop more vaccine. The economic cost is so huge. Then uh, let's uh, let's look back what happened to Mao Zedong. So he has to acknowledge uh, Great Leap Forward was wrong, and then he delegates decision-making power to Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, then the second and third powerful uh, politicians. And then he he ordered uh, Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping to fix this problem. While I acknowledge the problem, I will sit back in the second front line, and then I'll take care of propaganda and politics only for economic issues. Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, you uh, uh, fixed the problem. And their pragmatic policies in the early 60s became so effective and powerful, and the people start to support their policies against uh, Mao Zedong's uh, uh, political and ideological emphasis. Liu Xiaoqi and Deng Xiaoping, uh, they didn't really 
intent to challenge Mao Zedong's authority to take over the central leadership, but, but their policies became more popular, and then uh, Mao Zedong's authority is was marginalized. And then only way Mao Zedong can come back to power uh, against this uh, party uh, hegemony that is against his authority is to mobilize support outside the party, which was the start of the Cultural Revolution. So the analogy goes that so uh, correcting zero COVID policy is uh, so we have to see how people uh, evaluate that. They will say they may say that okay, Xi Jinping he can acknowledge his uh, mistakes and change the policy, so we have to support him. That can be one scenario, and that will be the party's propaganda. But also, some may people question that, okay, zero COVID policy was wrong, despite it was a Xi Jinping's uh, uh, signature policy. So many people sacrificed for this uh, ineffective, wrong policy for such a long time. And then that may be the beginning of uh, uh, people's criticizing Xi Jinping within the party. And then we have to see how they will turn into a factional uh, strife that uh, Deng Xiaoping and Liu Shaoqi also were the loyalists of Mao Zedong, uh, but that does not really prevent the the division of within the party and then the formation of faction among Mao Zedong's loyalists. So uh, we cannot just uh, uh, conclude that okay, the Politburo Standing Committee is filled with all Xi Jinping's loyalists, so there will be no factional strife at all. We cannot really conclude that uh, the factional strife can still spontaneously uh, arise within the groups of uh, Xi Jinping's loyalists, uh, but that's really hard to predict. Just uh, one possibility. Sir, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through all of this. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Angry Planet. The show is produced with love by Matthew Galt and Jason Fields, with the assistance of Kevin Modell. This is the place where we ask you for money. If you subscribe to us on substack.angryplanet.com, it means the world to us. The show, which we've been doing for more than seven years now, means the world to us, and we hope it means a lot to you. We're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. Please feel free to ask us questions, suggest show ideas, or just say hi. $9 a month may sound like a big ask, but it helps us to do the show on top of everything else that we do. We'd love to make Angry Planet a full-time gig and bring you a lot more content. If we get enough subscriptions, that's exactly what we'll do. But even if you don't subscribe... We're grateful that you listen. Many of you have been listening since the beginning, and seriously, that makes it worth doing the show. Thank you for listening, and look for another episode next week. Stay safe. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.